um, thankful to our government. Not always, but on this occasion I am. I say that with a smile, of course. Uh, we were approved for many uh, student internship grants. So many of you were praying into that. And they gave us uh, over 90% of what we asked for. So that is a miracle. And weren't expecting it. Yeah, let's give the Lord a hand for that. Um, just grateful for the generosity of uh, the recognition of local church uh, with our government. It, it, to me, it's a practical way of saying uh, the local church matters. And we're going to invest a significant amount of money into local churches for students to come and learn and receive. Uh, who agrees with that? I mean, that's, that's, that's the way that I interpret it. And so there's these wonderful young faces that you will be seeing around here, some that you already know, of course, and others that we are getting to know just through uh, relationship outside of CLA, but the Lord is bringing the right people into the right uh, places of influence and expertise, and I'm just thankful for that. We will introduce you to them as these weeks uh, move forward. But I'm telling you, it is good to see all of you in person. I'm tired of the video camera. And uh, although it is fun and it's, it stretches us as a team, we, um, we've come a long way in that area for sure. But it's, there's nothing like being together. And for all of you that are at home right now, so many of you, we love you. We're so excited to have everyone back together. As Cody said, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. Some would say even as soon as July. I'm, I'm with that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe for that date uh, each day. I'm going to pray that we find uh, those restrictions fall away and we can just get back to what we know and love, and that's just being together. doesn't mean things are going to look the same, but just being together uh, without masks, the smiles, the hugs, the presence of family is, um, is something that I'm missing. And I'm a pretty resilient person, as many of you know, uh, through our times together these last few years. But this has definitely taken a toll on even the optimist. Any optimists in the room? The back and forth of reality. Uh, you, now you can, now you can't. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Uh, I realized that this morning um, I have I've been affected by that, but I'm working my way out of uh, just the, the unknowns that we have experienced and focusing in on what the Lord has uh, for my life, for my marriage, my family, all of you as, as, as units, and of course us as a corporate church. These are some exciting days that are in front of us. And as I've said time and time again, even through our uh, online messages is that we believe when, when it feels like we need to uh, like regress and kind of get into survival mode and just live in that place, I believe the Lord is pushing us out of that and say, no, no, this is the time when the local church needs to be a voice, a voice that's building trust, a voice that's serving and caring for the communities that surround. And I'm all about that, as you know, and looking forward to this uh, day, this is a, a unique topic this morning as we look at future church. We've been in this series now for a few weeks. It's, it's a, a dream into what can things 
and should things look like on the other side of this pandemic, a church that I believe is grounded and solely a, a foundation in Jesus, one that doesn't compromise the things that matter most at the same time, is willing to pivot, and there's permission to go in a direction that maybe local churches have never gone before, but we are feeling a call towards that, to be courageous in areas. So we are being obedient to the Lord. How many of you appreciated Cody's message last week on generosity? Such a great, great uh, sermon on, yeah, thank you, Shelly, and so many others. Uh, we are very blessed to have the communicators that we do in this house, and you will hear from them as these weeks move forward as well. Uh, my topic this morning, again, it's not a light one, and it might be some terms in here that you have heard before but really aren't able to define. If we were to put a mic in front of you, you would have no idea what it means. I can say truly I'm not, I don't consider myself an intellect by any stretch, I do love the scriptures and theology and learning and unpacking, um, but I'm more of the simple kind in terms of how I present. But the Lord is pushing me towards a deep study in some of these things that are culturally relevant and basically to help me improve my perspective on what's actually happening around us. I don't know how many of you are doing that right now, but it is a fascinating path to walk when it comes to uh, the different things that we are facing and experiencing. I won't get into that today for the sake of time, but you know what I mean. Uh, life today in 2021 is very different from the, even the year 2000. Are you with me? It has changed so much, especially for our children and what they are experiencing today this comes from some very important, pivotal conversations that I've had with some of you out here, some of you watching at home today. Uh, conversation about who we are as people. There is this term out there today, and we all know it. It is called moral relativism. Anybody with me on that? Some of you understand what that means. Others of you, I will explain it and walk into it this morning. But the title of my message today, in light of our future church series, is a community of holiness in a culture of no absolutes. Now, even me saying the word holiness, some of you cringe, right? Some of you embrace it. Others of you have a very unique perspective on what that word means. I think it has been abused. I certainly think that we have at times a perspective of what that actually means at the heart and character of God that he never desired for us to see it as it's been played out through humanity. But there is something about this word, and we'll go there, that is so pure and so beautiful and so much the character of God. And I pray that in a few minutes as we transition our day to the next thing, uh, basically summer has begun, 30-some degrees this week. Who's, who's ready? So before we get there, I'm going to go into some uncomfortable places today. We're going to talk about the body and sexuality, and we're going to talk about um, the perspective on gender and different things. And you're saying, Pastor Tim, we just cut back. That's okay. It's important. And I really felt it was pivotal on this day in light of what some of you are walking through and all of us really are walking through. Uh, 
Let's pray. Jesus, we just pause and we in, invite uh, your presence into, into our thought, into our past experiences, into the trauma and the trial and the discontent of our, of our heart and our soul, even in this season. We invite you there today. Would you give even some the courage to, to open up that place of, of their mind, of their heart? Lord, we just rest and we stop and we say, as Cody did already, um, bring that desire that your, that your presence um, would, be, would be our guide. Help us to, um, to, to just wrestle through the distractions and the voices and the opinions. Filter through those, the weeds that are around us so that we can hear your heart. Not, not a, an explanation or, or understanding or perspective that is, that is uh, just saturated in hum, human opinion or human experience, but through all of what we have in front of us and what we're experiencing as a culture today, that we would see you, your character, and we would walk in that with confidence, knowing that the fruit of walking in step with your spirit is not judgment, it's not self-righteousness, it's not uh, isolation or creating subculture, but it, what it is is actually an embrace of what's around us in terms of the people and the hearts that you love so that we can serve and care for those that you have called us to influence? Would we get healthy so that we can be healthy for the world that surrounds? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Many of you know Devin and I and our, our saga with, with running um, and fitness and exercise. Some of you have no clue. Uh, my wife is a triathlete. Shout out to Devin. Uh, she will, she's had six children for those of you who don't know. And she will go one year or 13 months without running. And then one day she'll just wake up and say, babe, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna start running again. And I will say, are you sure? It's been a long time. Yeah, I'm good. And she'll go, she'll put her sneakers on and she'll go run 12 kilometers. Yeah, that's how I feel. It, it takes me about 12 weeks to get up to, you know, six or seven kilometers. But here's my dear wife. She's an exceptional human being and creates this reality that I cannot compete with. Anyone else feel that way with your spouse in other areas? Uh, I'm glad you're here this morning. There's this, I bring this up because we look at these, these baselines of how we perceive our world and Devin's world in the area of fitness is much different than mine her baseline is not my baseline and we've even talked about this and I've argued about this with her where babe you you just do you and I'll do me and I'll be I'll be content with my achievements don't judge me or think no and she doesn't but you know I feel judged because I'm insecure so we get there, but now at 40, I'm realizing how important it is to have a spouse who pushes me towards these things 
not intentionally, but just the way that she lives. I think that's actually the most beautiful way to influence people by example. And she does that. But we talk about these numbers. Her numbers are relative to her, mine are to me. And it, 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 it means something to me when I have an achievement that she, it's not even part of her achievements because her achievements are three times as much when she starts as I'm working towards. We've all been there in some capacity. But I share this story, and it, it seems harmless when it comes to, to fitness, but the idea of relativity doesn't stay in the realm of fitness goals or even eating preferences or even music. Relativity has moved into our morals, our ethics, and even our beliefs. Who agrees? We know this. Um, this is the water that we swim in. One very smart man said many years ago, this is our cultural reality that we are facing today. If you've allowed it to take place in your conscience, this is how we've been swayed to think about other people, okay? This is, this is the pressure that we're feeling from, from the world. What you think, okay, this is a tongue twister, so listen to me. What you think is right is right for you, and what it means for me to love and support you in that thing that you think is right for you is for me to say, I love you and support you in the things that you think are right. Now, I wrote it like that so you would think about it. And it sounds awesome, but it actually, it's not okay. But we have been so pressured to head in that direction in our subconscious. Let me define moral relativity before we continue. It is simply this up on the screen. There is no such thing as universal right or wrong. Individuals and cultures are free to form their own moral truths. And those truths are always correct because there are no objective moral truths to compare them to. Now, if you're, you need to stay with me today because this is some heavy teaching, but it's so, so important. This way of thinking has merged its way to, into all areas of our society where once universities were all about, right, the pursuit of truth and virtue many decades ago. This has happened by and large through... through um, uh, the, the shift of this thinking, excuse me, has happened in large by these fathers of suspicion, suspicion where we've moved away from truth and virtue into some other areas. Guys like Karl Marx, Frederick Nietzsche, Sigmund Freud. Some of you know those names. Others of you look them up. They call these guys the fathers of suspicion. Their suspicions were specifically aimed at religion or a sacred order to the world or of the world. They taught to be suspicious of anyone who claimed that there is a God who created everything and would hold humanity to a standard outside of ourselves. For example, to will your own desire as law or the symptoms of stress and anxiety was to be found in a technique that helped modern man get rid of the lingering influence of Christianity. Thus, learn to live autonomously without religion. That's what they pushed for. We now live in 2021 in a world that hasn't necessarily given up 
on objective reality, but we have just made subjective reality the new objective reality. I don't have time to unpack that, but you know what I mean. We've moved from the doctrine, not to say that this is the right doctrine, but from, from the 60s and 70s, there was that doctrine of, of liberation. Let's be free and throw off constraints on what's right and wrong. So that was kind of the beginning of this, of the, of the shift in our modern time, for at least for us that are living today. And we've moved from that liberation to a doctrine of condemnation. So it's even gone more sideways. If you don't accept my vision of the world as right, then you stand on the wrong side of history. And you are in danger of being canceled or outed. Anyone have someone that you love canceled in, in the media or in politics or music? It's happening every day. This had ultimately, has led ultimately to moral confusion because moral relativism leads to moral confusion. That is the truth. And I say that with confidence this morning. An example of this, just one that maybe we can think about that isn't necessarily an easy example, but I'll use it. There was this woman in the States named Rachel. She was a white woman who identified herself as a, as a black person. Do we remember, does anyone remember this? Now, there was outrage about this, yet there was also an acceptance of this. On one side, she was canceled. On the other side, she was embraced. There's all of these emotions from the, the black community, of course, that we're outraged by these things, yet we are moving towards this becoming a reality of acceptance. This is not intellectually honest at all, if I may say. But this is the world that we live in. And this is the world that is around us. This is what happens um, when we unpack these emotions. I'm sure all of us, there, there's just a gamut of, of thought going through your heads right now. That, that's my point. That's the point of this series is that we start to think and get uncomfortable about some things because it's really important to do that. There's a philosopher, Dallas Willard. Some of you know that name. Um, he calls this the disappearance of moral knowledge. And I quote, he says, as the West secularized... The locus point of moral authority, kind of that center point of moral authority, moved from God and scripture and the church to the enlightened-based triad of science, research, and university. That's what happened. The new understanding of sexual authority redefined what can be known. We can know math and science, but we can't know things like right or wrong is what's being shoved down our throats today. That is based on culture or your upbringing and what society decided in the moment. That's where we find what's right or wrong, but we cannot, we cannot define these things anymore. What has happened since moral knowledge disappeared in the name of science, it conveniently moved subjects like religion and ethics into 
a place of, of um, belief and faith where most people mean, uh, have opinions or wishful thinking. That's kind of that realm. You can put your faith in these things, but keep them in your private life. Do not bring them into the public conversation anymore. I don't know about you, but I've experienced that. As soon as the topic of faith arises in certain environments, it is frowned upon. We can only talk about science. Not just the hard science, but actually the, even the science of psychology. Now, this means that we live in a world where moral authority lies within us. Um, they call it, again, the science of psychology, where our moral authority lies within our subjective thought, emotions, and feelings. The moral conduct now says exactly this, and we've heard this term before, just follow your heart. Do you, as long as it doesn't harm anyone, not the revealed... Um, revealed will of God in the teachings and examples of Jesus, not the, that transcendent God who we love, who created you and everything that you see. You can't, you can't use that. Just do you. And back to my tongue twister at the beginning, I will accept you no matter where you're at as long as it doesn't harm anyone. The rule that most are living by currently is you can do you as long as it doesn't harm the people around you. The problem with that is harm require, requires the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? That's the problem. It requires the knowledge of that. But we can't even agree on what's good and evil anymore. Therefore, it's created confusion. Love, hate, and harm all require a transcendent source of moral authority. That's, that's, that's God's doing. And if we try to pull the divinity out, if we try to pull the eternal away from it, there's no place to land. And it just creates a lot of confusion. And that's the world that we are in today. Are you still with me, church? Almost all philosophers, both Secular, churched, people, philosophers of faith today agree that we need a source of moral authority, which is what we don't have. We are the first society in history, they say, to attempt to live with no sacred order or transcend, transcendent moral authority beyond the self. This is the first time. And it was certainly trending in that direction if we are not there yet. The emotional epidemic of anxiety and rage and depression and isolation and survival, all of that emotion. Anybody experienced a little bit of that this year to some capacity? If not personally, you certainly have with someone that you love. This epidemic is the attempt to create an ideal world apart from God. This is, the, this is the fruit of this. Or even a society of equality, justice, and happiness apart from God are very unlikely to succeed without God in the core, in the center 
of who we are as humans. Douglas Murray, he's a, an atheist uh, politician in the States. I found this quote. He, he explains that all of the grand narratives that have collapsed in Western society, like religion, political ideologies, etc., all of these things are collapsing around us. But he says it like this up on the screen. People in wealthy Western democracy, that's us, today could not simply remain the first people in record, recorded history to have absolutely no explanation for what we are doing here and no story to give life purpose. Even the atheists recognize that trying to find meaning in life without, within our, just within ourselves is not working. And I know for the majority in this room, you would obviously agree with that, if not all of us. My point in all of this is if you're still listening this morning, which I hope that you are, is that we need to restore a sacred order. Can I, can I hear some amens? And some claps. That really helps. Thank you. Because what we have right now is not working. It's not working. As your pastor, as a pastor, I do have a vision for the way we as the church must live. I and many of you and so many of my colleagues as well as we've been discussing these things in great length over these months. It's under the sacred order of a loving God who created us with purpose and meaning and dominion. We were created to live under the rule of God and thus rule the earth in a God-honoring way. We are the image of God, reflecting his glory onto the world. This is what we must restore in our minds, church. An understanding of the world and humanity as being a part of the created order and God being other set apart, the creator. This is the whole purpose, putting him back in his rightful place as the one who created all things. Theologians, just to unpack this a little bit more, they, they decipher these things by, by two, two terms, oneism versus twoism. Twoism says that we have a creator and there is a creation. We are, we are creation and he's the creator. That's that binary term, Okay. What's happening now in society, in the culture, in, the, in this secular order, is they're actually trying to destroy the binary. They're trying to destroy the creator and creation. Removing that, removing the binary from male and female. Hello. Trying to flatten any binary power, power in leadership and authority as well. Now, power, I use that term in, in, in the humble way, like a place of authority or of influence, trying to destroy that. This idea comes from the pagan goal to remove the creator, as Cody so eloquently said today, the infinity, the, how did you say it? Yeah, something like that. You don't even remember. Um, 
infinity or God or the creator, these wonderful terms. But all, as you know, we are referring to God. It comes from that place to remove him from the equation, which is that wrestle with one-ism versus two-ism. That's kind of a Romans 1 sort of thinking. Look at verse 25 in, in chapter 1. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. It's nothing new under the sun, but it's certainly something that we are experiencing at an incredible pace right now, the shift towards this agenda. The lie of paganism is the lie playing out in bathrooms today, in dressing rooms, trying to get rid of the binary. But there is, church, a twoism written in the code of the created world. Creator, creation, land, sky, night, day, male, female, good, evil. It's all from Genesis 1 and 2. From the beginning, from this place, we can have morality. Without it, all that happens is a confused state of mind. Not based on fads, but with a consistent line from the beginning of creation all the way back to those moments. Truth is, our world is becoming less moral and actually more moral at the same time. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, our world and the moral side, they wants to move towards human rights and equality and all of those wonderful things, inclusivity. Are you with me? There's a, there's a morality to that. There's, there's the heart of God in that, and we see some of that. But what is the goal that we are aiming for when it comes to morality? Are we using racial rights and reconciliation? I heard it like this. Are we using those things as a, like a Trojan horse for all other ideologies? Surprise, this was actually our agenda. It looks good, and it looks like a gift. Something to think about. I told you this wasn't easy today. Anyone sleeping? I don't think so. Okay. Where is the fulcrum for which morality hinges on, that reality hinges on? The answer for the secular world is that there isn't one. That's the thing. You never know when the next moral outrage will be. There's a comedian, I forget his name, but he's got a, he's got a little uh, set on this. It's hilarious. Uh, he talks about how, you know, all of our lives are being tracked right now on, on social media, maybe through CCTV cameras around the city. Like, everything we do, someone's watching. Yeah. <laughs> Just so you know. Or listening. Let's, okay, let's not get too scary. And he talks about this idea where you have um, this moment where maybe you're caught on camera walking past a homeless person 
okay? You might have said something to them, but your actions didn't support supporting this person. How do we know that in 10, 20 years from now, if they caught that footage of you, maybe culture in 10 years decides that the moral code, the secular moral code says that walking past a homeless person is completely unacceptable. And they decide that, just like they're deciding so many things right now of what's acceptable and not acceptable. And we laugh about that, but this comedian goes on to say, you better watch what you do today because you could be canceled next year. And it's this continual fight towards deciding these things. You don't know, I don't know, or you don't know what society will deem immoral and when because there is no fulcrum to and no foundation to draw from. However, for the followers of Jesus, this fulcrum that we live by is God and his authority. The teachings and the way of Christ. The world for Christ call upon us in a culture of moral relativism is to, I'll say it again, holiness. Let me unpack that just for a minute. One of the most repeated commands in Scripture is this. Be holy as I am holy. I agree with Christ, of course, when it comes to money, to the poor, to sexuality, all the things that he talks about on the Sermon of the Mount. I agree, and I'm sure all of us, for the most part, agree with those things as well. Holy in the Greek means hagia, or hagia, however you say it. Pardon my lack of interpretation. But it's defined, defined as set apart or dedicated to God. We are dedicated to the presence and the purposes of God. Set apart but also dedicated to the things of God. That is what holiness is. Look at how the followers of Jesus in Corinth talk about this idea of holiness up on the screen. This is our text for this morning, the deep dive into 1 Corinthians 6. Now, I didn't read it at the beginning because I didn't want to scare you, but hopefully our context now, you will be engaged and not Take a bathroom break, okay? 1 Corinthians 6, 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Notice that first statement is in quotations. I have the right to do anything. He is repeating back what the church of Corinth is saying to him. Oh, you have the right to do anything. Well, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Notice, notice here, they're speaking to Paul. They're having a conversation. Okay, but not everything is, is good for you. He's responding back to them. When we are controlled by our materialistic and sexual desires, this will actually enslave us is where he's going in this portion of scripture. Verse 13, let's continue. 
You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Greek philosophy taught that there is a spiritual and material world. Spiritual was good and eternal, and the material was evil and temporary. In today's terms, as long as you practice, as long as you practice yoga and eat clean, you can do whatever you want with your body. That's kind of the, the mandate out there. I mean, I'm being, you know, obviously a little bit uh, facetious, but you, you get my point. Put a little bit of this in place, and then everything else, you, you're good to go. Hmm. It's important for your soul to be nurtured. But your body, you can do whatever you want to it. My body's desire for sex is the same as my body's desire for food. Now, parents, if you don't agree with me on that, that is what is being shoved down our kids' throats today. That is what they are learning in school. That is what in, in I would say, Portland, Oregon, there are high schools today that have quotes from these, these guys that I talked about earlier and some of the new school guys who talk about gender is not about the physical, gender is in between the, you know, the, the mind you decide, talks about all, it's an, it's, a, it's an incredible world that our children are living in. If they go to a Christian school, they're not, they're not immune to it either. One of our dear friends, boys, who's 14 years old, just got expelled from a Christian school for standing up for male-female perspective to some girls who were so offended by this young man. They had no right to, they had no choice but to expel him. Now, I don't say that in any judgment. I'm just telling you, this is our world that we're living in. Are you still with me? Please love me after this service, please. Um, Look at Paul's reply, verse 13. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. But his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know what your bodies are members of Christ, that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Hmm. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. That's basically what Paul is saying here. The Greek word for this is pornea meaning any and all sex outside of God's way, outside of marriage. You were created for God. That's that two-ism context. Even our sex drive is about far more than our body's desire. I'll say it, for an orgasm. 
but for our soul's desire for communion and contribution for intimacy. Basically, not even marriage can satisfy the ache in full. Only a full life in God can do that at its most purest form. I'm not holding back today. Our bodies matter. They are the core part in our relationship with God. And how we carry out our cultural mandate here on earth is actually through our bodies. Newsflash. Sex is not just a biological act, but rather a fusion of two souls where two become one flesh, as he says. Therefore, in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, and therefore honor God with your bodies. That is the call from the Apostle Paul. Notice what a high view of the body and sex Paul has here. It's easy to miss this because of our sex-obsessed culture that we live in. We are, we're surrounded by it. It's almost become a religion where people get their identity, their meaning, their purpose from this place of, I would say, place of counterfeit intimacy it's easy to miss that scripture's view of the body and human and human sexuality is higher than that of sexual culture did you hear that the view in scripture of the body and sexuality is actually higher than what our sexual culture has created it's not lower when Christ's sexual ethic was introduced into the Roman world. When, when Jesus was there in that moment, it was like a bomb went off when he started to unpack these things. There's a quote I want to, to read from Tim Keller. Some of you know Tim Keller. He's a, just a beauty. Pastors a church in, in the States in New York a theologian, an intellect, just a smart man who's 60-some years old and still relates to the teenagers. You know you're led by the Spirit. When that's the case, he can preach and teach and is an incredible author. He says, the Christian sex ethic was revolutionary. It introduced the very idea of context in sex, and it made it not about self-fulfillment, which always privileges those with no power but about creating lasting community that reflects God's relationship to us. This is a higher, not lower view of sex. Modern culture's sexual logic, that sex is for self-fulfillment and self-realization, ultimately depersonalizes and objectifies because it ultimately turns sex into a consumer good rather than as a means to nurture a bond of covenant. It leads to fractured community and the decline of marriage and the family. Sex outside of marriage is ultimately transactional, and so it cannot finally be intimate. I come this morning with a, with a posture of, of humility. 
there is not a, a judgment in my heart today. But we have to start talking about these things again. In, in my prayers, in, in a posture of, of great grace, recognizing that our kids, our ch- this next generation, needs, they need some guidance. Not only does sex outside of God's design disintegrate intimacy in relationship, but it actually ruins the body itself. Listen to this. This is a lady named Melinda. She wrote a book. Um, she, she was uh, an atheist. And a, a lesbian for many, many years. And she found Jesus. And she wrote this book about sexual authenticity, honoring God with your body. I want to read this quote. Underneath the pop, the pop and fizzle of, it's not on the screen, you just need to listen to this one. It's too racy. Underneath the pop and fizzle of, sexological enthusiasm lies a fundamental despair. Not necessarily about life itself, but about the body. This seems counterintuitive. Surely, the sexual revolution is about the celebration of the body over and against the pretense that love ends below your neck. Yet beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love, there is a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything, that it is insignificant in a literal sense, signifying nothing. You can do anything that you like with it. I put dot, dot, dot there because she wrote some quite explicit things. Next, I I left those out. (laughs) Just for the sake of my nana who's 97 in the room. In order to believe this, you must either accept, A, that your body is not you, it is just a shell or a juicy robot that the real you, the disembodied ghost controls, or B, there is no such thing as human value or dignity. It's just a nice pretense that we make because we are terrified of this senseless and nihilistic universe. I don't even know what some of that means, but um, if you want that quote, come and talk to me. She finishes it like this. Ironically, Christianity, which has always been accused of putting God before man, stands alone amongst a host of modern philosophies declaring that man is a unified, complete being composed of both a mind with a free will and a body, all of which has dignity and meaning. I couldn't say that any better, obviously. Just brilliant. We are unified. We are a unified, complete being. And not just that, but in Paul's mind, we are actually, the body is what? The temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the temple. In Jewish theology, a temple was an overlap between heaven and and earth. There was a major connection with this. It was designed as a model of God's throne room where he rules Israel from. Now under the new covenant, which we all know is Christ's death and resurrection, our body now is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
That's the place of his presence is within us. Therefore, our call is to let God rule our body as it is in heaven, honoring him, honoring God with this temple. Sexuality is one telling example of how we do this. Nancy Piercy wrote this book called Love Thy Body. She says, what Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies that they give to the surrounding world. Sexuality has always been one of those areas where we are most different from the world. That's, that is not easy to argue because it's so true. This is one of those places. As well as an area that we pray we have most to offer the world as a compelling vision of an alternate way. Now, of course, that's, we, there's a ton of confusion that's been brought into our thought process in this area, but at the core, that is the case. This would mean that we become that we become a faith community, okay? These are the things that I, that I believe God's calling us towards. You ready for this? As a faith community. Where men and women would refrain from intimacy or sex before marriage. Where men and women seek a marriage partner not on the basis of looks or wealth or status, but on character where the unmarried, whether divorced, widowed, or never married, are incorporated as extended family members, having close relationship with both sexes and nurturing relationships with all generations. That's who we want to be. Where people, listen, where people with same-sex attraction are valued members and are given support for their calling and their chastity. It's a big one. Hear it. A people who struggle with the issue of sex and gender are welcomed and listened to with humility, patience, and love. Not comfortable, but my goodness, this is, this is where we have to go as the local church. It's not compromise at all. It's a heart posture. It's a shift towards embracing God's creation humanity, right where they're at. Now, there's a lot of conversation nuance in, in these areas that I'd, I could probably, we could probably do a whole series on just those six things. Maybe we will. But I do think that this is the high call for a community when it comes to sexual holiness. In a culture that has been given over to sensuality of the body, in so many ways, in so many ways, we live with the goal to live a life with God. In conclusion, I want to bring a little bit of solution to this. We can all take a deep breath. There's a practice. There's almost like three messages within this message, but it all needed to come out today so that we can set ourselves up for these next few weeks. There's some solution. There's a practice from the way of Jesus that helps to guide us 
away from moral relativism, which I have explained, of our day and towards this beauty of, of holiness, this beauty of understanding the character of God, walking in step with, with his spirit, toward our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. That thing is this, and it's, it's something we've all heard of, but it's fasting. Going without food. That's the literal definition. It's not abstaining from social media, which is awesome, or not shopping on Amazon every day. Those things are amazing because we are putting, we are putting our, our selfish desires and those, those moments of, 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 of quick reaction to rest and say, no, fasting is about abstaining from food. All of it is good, don't get me wrong, but for the context of where I'm going, for thousands of years, this was a core practice in Christian circles, a direct correlation to our spiritual health was this area of fasting. Now, it still happens, but it's kind of, it's become more of a, more of one of those things that they do, or the intercessors do, or the pastor does. Now, some of you have a, a beautiful rhythm in this area, and thank you, and I commend you on that. But I'm challenging myself just as much as the next person, where back in the day, there was so much value put on this, where twice a week they would fast, followers of Jesus or the way. It was so, it was so integrated into the fabric of the culture. And somehow we have dismissed its, its importance and value for, the, for, these gener, for these decades that we've lived in. John Wesley, for just a, a, an interesting quote that he has, I don't necessarily agree with it, but this is the, well, maybe I do, but hear my heart. I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, both in England and in Ireland, who following the same bad example have entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice a week that they do not fast even twice a month anymore. The man who never fasts is no more in the way of heaven than the man who never prays. That's why I said what I said beforehand. <laughs> but if you know John Wesley, you know that he was a general, a revivalist, a man of God. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount mentioned uh, three, three core practices, there's a bunch in there, but the three really core practices for followers of Jesus is, is these three things, praying, giving, which Cody did so beautifully unpack last week, the generosity piece, as well as fasting, praying, giving, and fasting. And we fast for three reasons as I close to give you a lot to think about this week. Number one, we fast so to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. Where we turn our body from the enemy to, to, to an ally. 
<laughs> How many of you feel like your body's been the enemy this year? Full disclosure, this shirt used to fit me a lot better. But I wore it just despite my, my lack of, of, of healthy eating these days. It's supposed to be funny. <laughs> Turning it from an enemy to an ally. If we starve the flesh, okay, it will lose its hold on you. And it will begin to die. One of the best ways to starve our flesh is to literally give it no food, obviously. This is so cool. Where the Garden of Eden and the temptation in the desert with Jesus and, and Satan, um, Adam and Eve, of course, with the garden, both of them had to do with food. There is a relationship between our level of self-discipline with food and our level of self-discipline with sin. Interesting. When you fast, your desire for God starts to increase immensely. This is absolutely true. Where we starve the flesh and we feed the spirit, which leads me to the next one, why we fast. Number two, to amplify our prayers. Fasting is a way to grow in spiritual power. Do you remember when the disciples were having trouble with casting out demons. And Jesus came along and said, that kind of demon only comes out with fasting and with prayer. There's a spiritual power and authority that comes when we focus in on this beautiful spiritual act of fasting. And thirdly, we do it to stand in solidarity with the poor. I love this one. If you want to get more on this, read Isaiah chapter 43, where we take the money that we would spend on food, on these luxuries, and we would give, them, give it to those who have no food at all. Back to that generosity context that is so, so important. Starving the flesh amplifies our prayers and it stands, helps us to stand in solidarity to the poor and so many other things, but those are the ones I want us to be thinking about this week. So how do I end this teaching today? Right on time. We must keep in mind this goal. We need to experience delight in God. More than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us most. Fasting works by delighting in God. First hunger, and then it moves to, to being anxious, and then that feeling of being sad. I, I don't know about you, but it takes us on that roller coaster of emotion when we're starving. Anybody there? Or have been there? These are, these are the things that happen. We realize in these moments how dependent we are on food to be happy. This is me. And other things as well, but food it does something crazy to our brain. We realize how we are in bondage to our own desires. And the gift of fasting teaches us to be happy even when we don't get what we want. 
So there is this incredible moment of revelation that takes place where we make peace with the emotion of while we fast, especially in those first few days, of making peace with not getting what we want and teaching us to find joy in that so that when the big things come in life, the real things that create incredible turmoil and tension and disconnect and trauma and major loss, we've already have this discipline in our hearts to say that we aren't defined by the emotion within, but we're defined by our relationship with Jesus. And the things that we experience do not dictate, do not dictate our relationship with him or define his character or his heart or his love for humanity. That's what fasting does. It's amazing. Fasting is a way of training our body to be happy when it doesn't get what it wants. Let's stand, church. I must preface this before I close. This con- this context of of holiness that I talked about today, and man, we could go so many more directions with it, but in in light of this teaching today, that and fasting, they're they're not methods to make God love us more. You must remember that. It's it's just ways in which we work out our our salvation with him. There's got to be a wrestle. If If you're not wrestling right now with faith and with validity of faith and the value of faith in today's world. If you're not losing sleep over it, I would encourage you to start losing sleep over it because we have to align ourselves with with the Lord. To start rewiring the way that we think so that we align with his heart and with his character. I know this has been crazy challenging this morning, but if you know me, you know my heart. I am, I am more impacted by this personally than probably everyone in this room because of what God is teaching me. And there's practice that we have to consider so that God, through his son Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, can have an explosive impact in our world right now. But there's a posture that we have to take as followers of Jesus in order to have the countenance and the humility and the grace and the patience to actually journey with people and not, and not lose our way or lose patience or get overwhelmed or get discouraged. It comes with intimacy with the Father. Let's pray. As we close, Jesus, I thank you. I thank you, first and foremost, that there is solution to all the confusion. And God, if there's anything that I've said today that sounded judgmental or like I was pointing out a person or a people group or an, a way of thinking that, that, that's caused pain, Lord, would would you just come with your Holy Spirit right now and just resolve that in each heart for those in the room as well as, as those who are watching online today or listening later this week. 
Father, would there be a beautiful uh, presence that leaves with us today, knowing that it's not judgment, it's not, we, we are not, a sense of being unqualified or a sense of, I don't have what it takes, Lord, but with this, this teaching, this, this, this emotion and, 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 and spirit in the room right now, lead us towards you, not away from you, Holy Spirit. Would we run to your presence if there's areas that we need to ask you for forgiveness? Would we run to our spouse or to our children or to our coworkers or our neighbors and, and say, would you forgive me for the way that I've acted or the way I've responded or the way I've treated you? Would it be a posture of humility and, and, and courageous approach to relationship that transforms the world around us? through the followers of Jesus. God, I thank you that you would go with us, encourage us, and overwhelm us with your grace in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. God bless you, church. Thank you. This would have been way easier to do online, but I said, let's face the, the church today. I love you. If you'd like some prayer, come on up. Transition this to some conversation over lunch, and we will see you next week. God bless you as you go.